Um, so good to be here. I, I, I know I said it last time, it is, uh, as, as uh, Keith said, it's um, try to make the priority to journal along with you. And I had a stretch uh, just recently where I spoke, I think it was 10 times in six days. By that point, you don't even remember who you're talking to. So, uh, so it's really nice to come and, and send some, uh, some familiarity. So we're, I'm wrapping up a series, I understand, um, on what moves you. I have the great joy of uh, reading you know, Keith's uh, transcript, so I have a good sense of where you've been and some of the things you've talked about. And this idea of being moved is, um, is intriguing. We're all moved by so many different things. I know that Keith touched on, you know, there's burden, there's weight that we feel that moves us. And then, and then there's the uniqueness of being moved differently. We're all in different places. Uh, and I recognize that this morning. Some of you may be just checking out Christianity. Some of you may have journeyed with Jesus your whole life. I know I've shared in the past my story as I grew up in church I have no memory of not knowing God. You know, I, I was like born in the pew, you know. I, uh, that's all I've known. It's all I've understood. Uh, and, then, and then everywhere in between. And the beauty of, of the journey of following Jesus is it is everywhere, and we're always in process. And we're, it's not like you achieve a level and then you go to the next level. It's more like running around a track. You go around, then you go around again. And then, I don't know if you've had this experience. My experience is that, and then there's times when I, I thought I really learned something, and then I realize a couple years later, I, I need to learn that again, or I just relearn that again, or, or passages that I've read dozens and dozens of times, and then the, the word doesn't change, but I change. And then I read that passage, and it has a whole fresh level of Velcro to my soul and kind of locks in. But wherever you're at, we're moved. We're moved by so many different things. And I, uh, I was interviewing a, um, uh, a conductor once, and, and I asked him about, he, he conducts this youth orchestra. And I said, how do, you put, how do you put courage into young people's lives to perform at some of the highest stages in the world, the highest level of performance. And he said, courage is just a byproduct. You don't put courage in anybody's life. You find out what they love. And he said, you know, it doesn't take courage to run into a burning house. It takes knowing that your child is in the burning house. Love drives us. Love, in my theme today, is what moves us. And when we find certain things that, that capture our heart, we can skip the rationale for, is this going to work out? Is this going to be safe? Is this going to be, you know, and, I, and I, fly, I fly a lot these days. And, uh, and I know that I'm, I'm way more of an athlete in my brain than I am in my body. But whenever I get on a plane, I'm always thinking, you know, if somebody does something, I'm going to have to jump up and do something, you know? If somebody you know, causes a problem, my family's with me or my wife's with me, because love compels me, I'm going to have to do what I can to protect and to help. And I think that when we think about this idea of being moved, we can talk ourselves into it. I, I want to act this way. I want to be this way. I want to go tell people about Jesus or whatever fear is in your mind. I want to live a certain way. I would suggest to us this morning that what really moves us is, is love, is what's set in front of us. And um, I want to 
I want to look at a passage, and I think we'll just look at the whole, the whole passage. It's only three verses, and then I'll kind of extract some things from it. So let me, let me share it with you if we have it. We got it. We got it. Therefore, and when you read the Bible, quick Bible lesson, whenever there's a therefore, it's always there for a reason. So as soon as you see it, you should look back and see what was just in front of it. So just in front of it, you have the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. And in that chapter, you have what I call the who's who of faith. And it's basically a story of a historical sketch of those who've gone before us. He says, because of all these who've gone before us, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and I just want to zero in on this next phrase for a moment. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. In other words, he understood what was in front of him. He understood that if he, if he went through this very hard road, the win was for us this morning. He understood the joy set before him. And I think what moves us most in the example of Jesus is knowing what is set before us. What moves us often is love, joy, the things that are set before us. Now, when we look through the narrative, and this, this passage is an example of that, Paul, one of the New Testament authors, and whoever the writer of Hebrews is, seems to always fall on this idea of running a race. And, and I was thinking, as I took the assignment from Keith, I was thinking, well, the idea of moving, uh, the same principles of running a race are really important. And I've really wrestled with this concept for a few decades in my life, to be honest with you. And I think that image from the New Testament, right, because there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't ESPN <laughs> and, and so many different sporting uh, arenas and avenues. I mean, even I questioned some things whether they're sports or not, but it doesn't matter. Basically, they had runners. They had a marathon. They had people that competed in that level. And that was really the extent of, well, as we understand it, you know, the the athletic world in the ancient time or the biblical arena. And so I want to listen to these writers and, and kind of zero in and just draw a couple things that have really helped me over the year. And the first is, you know, the passage opens up with this phrase, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Over the course of my life, I've thought of that phrase, and I thought, what, and uh, I steal this from John Maxwell. I always try to give credit when I know who it is, at least for the first couple times. After the third time, it's mine, but uh, I, I steal this phrase from John Maxwell, and he says this, what would it be like if some of those men and women in the cloud of witnesses, those who have finished their race here on the planet, could come down from the bleachers and take one lap with us, what would they say? And I, I've kind of tried to read the narratives of the Bible like that and think, what, 
You know, for example, what would Moses say if he could take one lap with us? He might say things like, watch out, your anger can get the best of you. Because it was in the end of the day, it was his anger that kept him out of the promised land. It was his anger that sent him 40 years into the desert to work on his character a little bit so God could use him again. So he might say, reel that in a little bit. He, he might also say that, you know, he got some good counsel once that you can't do everything yourself. You need to be sure you share the load. Let other people step up and, and do the necessary work. He, he might say that kind of your scariest moment, it's kind of in the character of God that that's when he likes to show up most. I mean, think about standing at the Red Sea, the water splashing on his feet, and there's a big army coming about to take his head off. You think, why didn't, why didn't you know, three or four hundred yards out did he see the ocean split? Why? He might say, you know, God is, is funny sometimes. <laughs> he might say that. But you know, I, I think if we could just take a lap with some who have gone before us, the cloud of witnesses. You know, we might, um, we might take a lap with Joshua. Think about Joshua. He had to follow the superhero, Moses. And if you think that he was confident about that, you just read Joshua chapter 1 and 2, and you'll see that I think it's six, between six and eight times it says, be strong and courageous. Now, if you need to be told in one chapter six times to be strong and courageous, you're not very strong or courageous. He was a very insecure leader. But he might say to you, you know, and, and it says that when they went from city to city to conquer the city, they went as one man. He, would, he might say to us, you know, unity is really important, especially when you face the toughest things. He might say, be really clear about who you are and who you're not. In fact, I think, it's, I think it's more important to know who you're not than who you are. Do you think he was compared to Moses? Absolutely. Do you think he was any kind of leader like Moses? No way. And I think he would say probably a lesson that he learned the hard way, be really clear who you are and who are you not. You know, if you, if you went around with him, you might find that you can lead with different personalities. You know, Joshua was... Just a, a unique leader. If you could take a lap with Joseph, what would you learn from him? God has a peculiar way of preparing you for leadership. <laughs> you know, he gave him this great vision that he was going to be a great leader. And the first, first preparation of that vision is your brothers, you know, they want to kill you, but they think they'll be in too much trouble if they kill you. So they just sell you as a slave and lie about you. And then you... Move your way up through the prison system, and, and you go to Pontifer's house, and, and you, uh, you get accused of rape. And then you're back in jail. And then you're forgotten in jail. And then you become the leader exactly as God said you would be. And he might say if he took a lap with us, right now, this slice of time right now, this isn't everything. It's just a chapter. I was talking with some people yesterday, and one of their children had, had made a lot of really dumb decisions. I know none of your children ever make any dumb decisions. I'm sure it's just this guy's and my children. 
Um, but he was very, very distraught. And I said to him, you know what? It's just a chapter. The book isn't finished yet. You know, and I think, I think Joseph, if he could take a lap with us today, he'd say, you know, there's some chapters that are very confusing. Like, if God really had his hand on me, why in the world am I, am I a slave? Why in the world am I accused of something I didn't do? Why in the world am I in prison and I've been forgotten here and I'm never going to find my way out? Why would God give me a promise and stick me here? And, and I think that he'd probably put his arm around us and say, you know what? Just a chapter. Book's not over. You know, in every great story, there are crisis moments. I mean, you watch a movie, you know, and there's what makes a movie great is you're going, oh, no, how are they going to get out of this? Oh, no, I thought that was a good guy. Now he's really a bad guy. Uh-oh, he's a good guy again, you know. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that Joseph would say, you know, it's okay. It's just a chapter. Gosh, I could talk about this the whole time. David, what would David say if he could take a lap? Uh, watch out for Saul, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, he might, uh, he might say, uh, be careful in positions of leadership. Boy, I'm learning this lesson right now. That uh, people, your, way, your words weigh more than you think they do. I mean, he's sitting with a group of guys behind the enemy's line, and he says, you know what? I'm thirsty. <laughs> And these guys go into the enemy's territory to get him a drink of water. And he comes back and he's so flabbergasted by it, he pours the water on the ground. Which, I mean, he could have at least drank the water. But, but I think he would say, you know, be careful. Be careful with what you say because it affects other people. He, I mean, David, I mean, here we have chapters and chapters of stuff. And I think when I was here... Sometime in the last uh, year, you know, I talked about how I really looked at his life and some of the great lessons that I'd learned from it. But, you know, if you could take a, take a lap with, with Gideon, you know, Gideon to me is, is the definition of bad self-esteem. It says he, uh, his family was the worst of all families and he was the least in his family. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Uh, and then God looks over, and he's down in this well, and he says, Gideon, you mighty warrior. He might say, if he took, a, took a, a lap with you, he might say, don't define yourself by what other people say you are. Define yourself by who God says you are. I tell you what, a lap with Gideon would get us a long way. Peter, Peter was um, ready, fire, aim <laughs> you know he just he led with his heart he said you know you know just wash my feet wash my whole body if you're gonna die i'm gonna die and, but god liked that characteristic about him you know if he took a he took a walk with you he might say you know passion is good just be cautious just be cautious with your passion it might take you places you're you're not sure you want to go or if you took a lap with paul i mean we could we could go through, the, the biblical record is full of these stories, and I tell you that to say, if you're going to be moved by the same thing that moved Jesus, as we see in Hebrews chapter 12, the joy set before him, then listen to other runners, listen to other people who have been moved that are found in the biblical record, but I'd also go further. I'd say listen to those around you in the community of faith. Like I said, I grew up in church, and um, I can tell you, 
Uh, it's the men and women that I grew up with that shaped my life. It's the men and women. And my church, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church, and, and everybody in the church was my aunt and uncle. No, nobody was related to me. That's just how I grew up. And everybody, that's how I, re, I, re, I responded to everybody. Never called them by their first name. I, everybody was aunt and uncle. To this day, well, I just revisited, I visited that church this summer, and and I still call them all aunts and uncles, you know, and they're in their 80s and 90s. And, and there was this one particular woman, I call her Aunt Beth. Um, and she, uh, she came into my life at so many significant moments. One moment was, and I was a teenager, and, and uh, I, I mean, I, I was just trying to follow God, but I, I, had made, I was making mistakes. And my Aunt Beth came up to me and put her hands on my shoulders, and she says, you know, Nick, you're fooling everybody in this church except me and God. So you better straighten up. I mean, it was like God had his hands on my shoulders and my Aunt Beth had her hands on my shoulders. But I was able to see my Aunt Beth this last uh, summer, and, and I, uh, she was in a walker. She's in her 90s. And I walked up behind her, and I said, Aunt Beth, and she turned around, and, and she put her hands on my shoulders. And she was all Nikki. Not too many people get away with calling me Nikki. She's all Nikki. I didn't, I was just thinking about you the other day, thinking, will I see him before I die? Because I, I love him. And I thought, this is why I live this life. It's because of Aunt Beth and, and Uncle Milburn and, and those people. And, and that's why we gather in a place like this. It's those who go before us. And it's those who go with us. And those who, who model for us, how do, we, how do we go through life's hardships? If you want to be moved, it's really important to listen to those who've gone before you, both dead and alive. Dead meaning the record in Scripture, and if you'd like me, you like reading books from old dead guys and, and gals. The second thing that I've learned, if I'm going to be moved by compassion and the joy set before us, is to consider the cost. You know... If you're going to enter a race, there's a, there's a price. There's a price to it. And um, you, have to, you have to weigh the cost. And I think often um, we invite people to follow Jesus, but we have a selected group of stories that we like to share, right? I mean, I've done this. Uh, we, we'd say, you know, you let Jesus in your life, and you can live life to the full, have abundant life. Rarely do we quote the story of John the Baptist, and you may lose your head, right? Rarely do we you know, talk about Paul who suffered right, with a thorn that kept him close. And I, I have a friend who I've become close with the last couple of years, and he said, you know, God is the closest to times of suffering, loss, and confusion. As I thought about that, I thought, man, that's about the best news I could hear. Because when I'm doing really well, I don't know about you, my prayer life isn't nearly as ramped up as it is when I'm really suffering. The scriptures don't seem to have a, a super glow to them when I'm just coasting around and everything's falling my way. But man, when I am hungry, those words come alive. And so we count the cost of what it means to be moved. We want to make a difference. We want to grow in the knowledge of God. We want to 
We want to be people that when we leave the planet, the planet's better. We want to be a church that if we disappeared tomorrow, that this community would say, oh, man, it's like a, it's like a gap. There's, a, there's something lost in this region if this church disappeared. And I think that we, I think that I oftentimes approach my Christianity and and the danger is that I'm a, I'm a fan instead of a follower. You know, a fan, I'm a Patriots fan, Red Sox fan. I'm a local fan. And so I, I use crazy terms like, yeah, my team lost today. I use the term like, yeah, we, we have a tough opponent. Like, like, it matters what I think. Like, if they lose, I'm going to lose my job. Or if they... You know, if, if it's a rough game, that I'm going to really be sore on Monday. Like, I really, a fan, and, and, and you know what a fan does? A fan is full of emotion. We cheer. And we, this is a good thing. It's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. And we, we, we believe we're part of the team. We're not a part of the team. We're fans. We'll even put on a uniform, and we can't even think about going up against, you know, Pick the player. <laughs> We'd be killed. <laughs> Snapped in half. Left for dead. But we'll put, on a, we'll put on a jersey, you know. So a fan is emotion and everything about identifying with the team, but you're not on the team. And I think in my Christian faith sometimes I'm like that. I don't count the cost. I, I'll, I'll just celebrate the goodness and greatness of God. I'll declare we're going to change the planet. I'll jump up and down. I'll even put the uniform on. But am I a follower? And I think that when we count the cost of being moved, we have to determine, are we a fan or a, a follower or a disciple or a player? You know, Jesus addressed this in Luke chapter 14. We won't read it, but uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a warning there. You know, if you're going to build a building, you need, to, you need to think about what it's going to take. I mean, as, as amazing as this building construction project is, I think two, two or three times ago I was in here and it was um, in process. <laughs> I, we were in a stab meeting the other day and one of the guys that works on our team said, Nick, I finally figured out when you say it's a work in progress, that means you're really unhappy with the way things are right now. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he used stronger words than that, but that's what the point is. Which, and it was so exciting to be in here when there was no paint on the wall and there were, there were raw and it was dusty and this, this was dirt. But you know, if three years from now it was just like that, you'd go from being excited to, Keith needs to get his act together. <laughs> You know, we need to get this board needs to get it on. You see, it's okay to be in process, but we have to be in process. We have to be moving somewhere. And that's what, you know, Jesus warns in, in Luke 14, that it's, it's okay to be under construction, but make sure you've counted the cost of what it's going to take to finish. I mean, you would have been shocked if you'd have done all, and I love destruction way more than construction. I mean, I like to be the one with a big hammer. I don't like to be the one with the fine paintbrush. You know, I like the wide sweeping blows. <laughs> he also talks about a king who would go into war without considering, can his army handle it? And so I would just say that if we're moved by love, we have to be cautious that we count 
the cost. One of the ways we do that is to, is to let the end speak to the present. Where is this going to take me? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, shame and suffering. You and I have to live in the present future. We have to live knowing what is set before us so we can count the cost for where we're at. The third thing is, we're still in verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders. And I would say in that phrase, that does not necessarily mean sin. Because the next phrase says, some of you know it, and the sin that so easily entangles. So if the first phrase, throw off everything that hinders, is not sin, then what is it? I say it's the good stuff that's not the best. It's the stuff that we would defend and say, that's not wrong, is it? <laughs> we can put a lot of stuff in that category. But if we're going to be moved by compassion, we have to know the difference. So if a runner is going to run a race, to use the New Testament narrative, you know, you don't put on um, boots in case it rains during the marathon. You don't put a sweatshirt and pants on just in case it gets cold. You don't put a backpack full of snacks in case you get hungry. You don't um, bring your wallet in case you want to stop and have a snack or a meal or Starbucks coffee. You don't take a towel, show, uh, soap, and prepare to, you know, maybe you get sweaty, so you want to take a shower halfway through. You don't take a laptop in case you want to just check your emails along the way. You don't do any of that stuff when you run a race, right? You're as light as you can possibly be. In fact, first century runners ran naked. <laughs> Not suggesting that. <laughs> but they ran as light as possible. I am suggesting that. The good versus the best is what do we fill our life with when we're moved? It would slow us down. The joy is set before us that allows us to endure the cross. What, what can get in the way of that? The areas of our life that bring the most meaning and the most depth are relationships and spiritual depth and growth. Things that last for eternity. The only thing that really lasts for eternity is people and God's word. Those things require margin and not a life that's so full that you can't give time to them. The love God, love each other stuff. And so he, the writer of Hebrews warns us, be cautious about the stuff that weighs you down. And run in a way that you can be light. Now that, that is, uh, you've probably heard Keith and I both say, that is a tension to manage, not a problem to solve. You won't just come away and fix that because every stage of life has different things that we fill our life with. Things I fill my life with now in my 60s are not the same I fill my life with in the 30s, my 30s. It's all different. But I always need to be cautious of the good versus the best. Do I need this? Will this weigh me down? Will this become a distraction? It's true for all of us. How do we run light? And then finally, get rid of the dangerous race-ending activities. If we're going to be moved, the joy set before us, we have to endure. There are things that can be game breakers. And the phrase is, and the sin that so easily entangles us. This is a guy who's running along, and then he trips. 
He might get up, but if he gets up, he might be slowed down. It's the sin that so easily entangles us. The Bible has two words for sin. One is if we, uh, we drew a target on the wall and we aim at the target, but we miss the target. Sometimes we know it's right and we try to do it, but, but we miss. And there's a second word in the, in the scriptures for sin, and that is there's a line right here, and you shouldn't cross this line. You look at the line and you step over the line. Those are the two images we have for the word sin. Missing the mark or just stepping over a line that's laid out as God's strategy. So when we do that, we hinder the ability to move toward what God is calling us to do, to be moved by love, to be moved by compassion. Some of you know it. Some of you know when you want to do something good, but yet there's this, this entanglement that's so locked you down. Let me, let me end with a word of hope. Sin doesn't have a permanent hold. That's why we do communion. Sin doesn't have to entangle you permanently. That's why Jesus came. That was the joy that was set before him, and that's why he endured the cross, so that when you are entangled, it's not permanent. It's just, it's just a moment. It could be just a moment. Paul writes in the, to the church in Rome, Sin shall not be your master. I grew up Baptist, so I'm not used to screaming amen, but that would be a moment. <laughs> I'm so glad sin is not my master, and you should be too, because it is a terrible thing. Because you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Sin does not rule, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. I, one of my least favorite verses I'm about to read to you, all right? Don't judge me. No, you can. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Don't you hate that? Don't you wish that the temptation that seized you was just really hard for you? Because you could say, could you blame me? I mean, look at what I came under. Look at what I was tempted with. This verse takes that stone out of your hands and says, you know what? What you're feeling right now, the temptation you're feeling right now, it's common. You don't want it to be common. I don't want it to be common. I want it to be unique to me. That was the biggest giant ever. Nobody faces a giant like I face a giant, right? Okay, I know you believe it. You still want to say amen. <laughs> and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can hear. This is saying that sin does not have to hold you. And John, who just followed Jesus around, Jesus around you know, writes this small little letter and he says, you know, I write to you that you won't sin. John chapter 2, 1 John 2. And if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on their behalf. There is so much hope in the scriptures and the story of Jesus that sin does not have to entangle you. And when you start running along and you feel like, this is what God has called me to do and I'm, I'm stuck, I'm tangled. Remember, it doesn't have to hold you. I, I know that as many times as here, I probably shared, I shared this illustration, but I'm going to close with this. In fact, I think it's okay to share things. In fact, one time when I was pastor in Boston Worship Center, I, I preached the exact sermon the second week that I did the week before. 
And about halfway through, I could see people were figuring out, this sounds strangely familiar. <laughs> and I said, I didn't make a mistake. I just don't think you got it the first time. <laughs> so I'm preaching it the second time. <laughs> Andy Stanley tells this story about going camping. And every summer, they would go camping on the, on the beach in, in North Carolina. And uh, the first thing they would do at this particular campground is they would, they would set up the tent and then, and then their father would take them, Charles Stanley would take them, and he would walk way down the beach, and he would build a pile of rocks. And they would take the children, and he would walk to the other end of the beach, and he would build another pile of rocks. Because this particular part of the beach had a very strong riptide. And you're familiar with this. When you're in the ocean, there's a strong tide. You're just swimming along. You don't feel anything. All of a sudden, you look up, and if you're a child, you say, where's my mom? <laughs> you know, where? I, it moves you down the beach. And so what he told the children, he said, you see, this, you see this rock pile and you see that rock pile. You go in the water here. And then every now and then you look up and you see there's a rock pile there and a rock pile there. And if you're in between those two rocks, you're okay. Continue swimming. But if you happen to be in the water and all of a sudden you look out and you see there's a rock pile and there's a rock pile, and he looks at his children. I believe he did this every summer. He looks at his children and says, as soon as you see that, here's what you do. Get out of the water. <laughs> walk on the beach, walk back up the beach, and walk back in between the two pile rocks. I believe that is one of the best pitches of what the scriptures are. We will find ourselves subtly pulled. And every now and then we'll read the scripture and we'll see something and we look up and realize, uh-oh, I need to get out of the water. Because <laughs> oftentimes, I've never heard anybody come into my office and say, I'm making a decision today to backslide. <laughs> I am so in love with Jesus and I, I'm in the Word every day and I've got a great community of leaders around me, but I think I'm going to backslide today. More often, it's I come in and, you know, I don't know how I got here. It just kind of subtly happened. All of a sudden, I have no joy. I haven't read the scriptures. I really don't care. And I make it to church when there's nothing else to do. And I want to say, get out of the water. <laughs> get up on the shore. Walk back down and get back in. And so I close with this. Listen. Listen to the crowd. And if you can, take a lap with a cloud of witnesses. You can do it, reading the scriptures. And then take a lap with those who sit in this room and ask questions. Have you ever wrestled with this? How did you get through this? How do I find my way in this moment? And learn from those in the crowd. Secondly, consider the cost. If because of the joy set before us, we're going to endure something, it's going to cost you something. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, to follow Jesus means one thing, come and die. You know, when I read that passage, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What springs out really loud is I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There is a cost, and we don't ever hide the cost. And stay light in the race. 
There's a lot of good stuff. I love to travel to parts of the world where people don't have the stuff we have. Because, as Mother Teresa said, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. And some of you know what that feels like. You know exactly what that feels like. You thought you needed fill in the blank. And you don't know that Jesus is all you need. You thought you needed Jesus and a great job and children who never made bad decisions and you thought you thought and then when Jesus all you got you realize that's really all I need so stay light and be careful of those race ending entanglements sin doesn't have to hold you ever that's why Jesus came that was the joy set before him he saw your life what's your name saw Jim's life, and he said, I'm going to the cross so Jim is not entangled by sin. And when he does get tangled, he can be free and live a full life. So sometimes you just got to get out of the water, walk up the beach, and go back in. And we pray for you, God. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for this moment. Thank you that your love compels us. Thank you for the example of Jesus, that the joy set before him allowed him to endure and to suffer. And that the joy set before us would allow us to live a life in such a way that we could be moved by burden. We could be moved uniquely to who we are. And we could be moved by the example of Jesus. And Father, I, I pray that those who may be here, that um, they're entangled, that they would be freed up. Even as we sing this song, they would just literally be freed up to realize that Jesus came so that they wouldn't be entangled. And those that maybe are hearing about a life that they never imagined they could live would just come to the feet of Jesus. Say, I've tried to manage my life, but it hasn't worked out so well. I'm going to let you manage my life. I give it over. Be the Lord of my life. And some of you are like me, where you've known God a long time, but you've taken over the management yourself, and you need to release the reins again and say, you know what? As I moved... I'm going to listen to the cloud of witnesses. I'm going to stay light. I'm going to count the cost. And man, am I going to get rid of the entanglements. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.